This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by a brand new book called The Four Elements of the Wise, Working with the Magical Powers of Earth, Air, Water, Fire by Ivo Dominguez, which is out on May 31st from Wiser Books. The Four Elements of the Wise is an in-depth exploration of the elements, their lore, history, correspondences, and use in spellwork and ritual. The book examines the use of the elements in a wide range of systems and practices and offers new teachings and techniques for newcomers and longtime practitioners alike. The Four Elements of the Wise is available directly from Wiser Books or wherever books are sold. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Pretty Cult. The Pretty Cult is an apparel brand whose love of tarot, the occult, and of course, all things rock and roll are put into every piece created. All Pretty Cult items are sewn, screen printed, and handmade in the House of Cult in Los Angeles, California, and it's a woman-owned and operated shop. And now, Witchwave listeners can take 15% off their first order with code WITCHWAVE, all one word. So check out theprettycult.com, that's www.theprettycult.com, and use WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. As the weather is getting warmer here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, I've been trying to go outside more, and it has been so marvelous to re-engage with nature spirits of all sorts a little bit more deeply. But I gotta tell you, so many of the most magical experiences of my life have actually happened indoors particularly in museums. Interfacing with a stirring work of art or sacred object can be a moment of ecstasy, and visiting with pieces like Augustus St. Gaudens' Diana at the Metropolitan Museum or the Queen of the Night Bernie relief at the British Museum are pilgrimages for me. And that's actually been one of the aspects of the pandemic that's been the most challenging for me, because so many of these spaces have been closed or have felt inaccessible for me up until my recent vaccination. I just went to PS1 to see the Nikki de Saint-Fal show, 
and I really can't recommend it more highly for anyone who loves tarot and color and magic and feminism and prismatic joy. And being there felt like getting a whole other dose of medicine. But speaking of the magic in museums, I am also deeply grateful for the universities and institutions whose mission has been to preserve and study witchcraft artifacts and knowledge, such as the witchcraft collection at Cornell University, which has been a bottomless well of information for me in my own research, and the Buckland Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Cleveland, Ohio, which not only curates American witchcraft objects and ephemera, but also has wonderful contemporary art exhibitions, such as one that is about to open this summer featuring the work of my dear friend and prior Witch Wave guest, the occult artist Jesse Bransford. So do be sure to check that show out. I hope as all of these spaces start opening up to the public more readily, you will join me in supporting them, especially after the extremely challenging year they've all had. And on that note, there is one museum in particular which is a monumental presence in both the historical and modern witchcraft realms, and that is the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle, England. I am so appreciative of their digital collection, which has been an invaluable resource for my work. And getting to finally go there and see everything in the flesh, or in the spirit, as the case may be, is one of my highest priorities now that the world is beginning to wake back up a bit. And so it has been such a pleasure getting to know the director of the museum, Simon Costin, who wears many hats, pointy and otherwise, and as you'll hear, our conversation was a wonderful way of visiting the museum vicariously, which should tide me over a little bit longer until we can all go there in person. The museum happily reopened to the public just a few days ago, and you can now go online and get advanced tickets. And I am sure I speak for Simon as well when I say we certainly hope that you will do so. But before we get to that, first let's check and see what's come through on the Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Vicky writes, Hi Pam, love your podcast so much. I've been finding it difficult to put my all into doing my witchcraft without fear creeping on me. My mother is very religious, and so was my grandma, so any type of witchcraft was never spoken about, and anything quote-unquote dark and not of God was considered evil. My mother recently found out about the witchcraft that I'm into, and she tries to scare me into thinking God will punish me for my beliefs. Whenever I get into the mood of doing anything related to witchcraft, I feel good. 
but then I start overthinking the what ifs and start doubting my power. I can't seem to let go of the fear that my mother has instilled in me, and I just want to let it go. I want to feel that what I'm doing isn't wrong. How can I do that? Hi, Vicky. You know, I hope that you'll find some comfort in knowing that this is a question that comes up so frequently that I've actually answered a version of it over on the Witch Wave website's frequently asked questions, so you are not alone in this anxiety. But I felt called to address this topic again in light of my conversation with my guest today, as well as some ludicrous rumors that come up in the media and now online with some regularity, unfortunately. And that's the question of, you know, is witchcraft evil? And the simplest answer is no. The link between witches and devils or the devil was only really popularized in the early modern era due to some pretty shitty and rather deadly PR on the part of the church and on the part of misguided civilians. And this fear of witches and witchcraft is still with us today, and people still lose their lives to witch hunting around the world, or in less extreme but still very upsetting circumstances, some lose jobs or custody of their children or become imprisoned due to these fears and misconceptions. Now, personally, I don't have much patience for people who panic about the influence of Satan and alleged baby-eating or child-harming witches and all of that other bullshit when there are real-world evils like, I don't know, schools being shot up or kids being put in cages at the U.S. borders or child poverty. All of which, for some reason, these same evil-hating, child-protecting people don't seem to get as upset about. Hmm, makes you think. But there's another, perhaps more nuanced, dialogue to be had about witchcraft, and the inherent goodness or wickedness of it, and for me, asking if it's helpful or harmful isn't actually the right question. Because Witchcraft just is, and its positive or negative aspects or applications all depend on how it's being used. Let's consider a similar question. Is science good or is it bad? Now, most would say it's good because it has brought us medicine and technological advancements that have improved the world in countless ways. But there are certainly people who have used science to make weapons and poisons and data mining social media apps, right? Science itself is neutral, and I would also argue that witchcraft is too. With either, we have to be conscious and careful and responsible about how we choose to use it. It's my belief that both science and witchcraft have made my life better and the world better. 
But yeah, there are some who choose to use science or witchcraft in ways that are harmful. And to complicate matters even more, some of them may even believe that any harm that's caused is justified. And now we're getting into the murky territory of ethics and morality, and these are all important conversations to have and questions to ask and things to think about. But I want to get back to the original point. No, witchcraft is not inherently evil. And your mother and grandmother probably thought it is or think it is because that's what they were taught by their community and by the media and so on. But more often than not, those beliefs cause more harm themselves because it's usually people who are accused of being witches or wielders of supernatural threatening power or evil end up being the ones who suffer, who are persecuted and punished and discriminated against or made to feel like you, judged or unaccepted or like you're doing something wrong. So in terms of you overcoming your own anxiety about witchcraft, I hope framing this with a little more context and a little bit more critical thinking is helpful for you. But I also want to remind you that you are in control of how you choose to use your power. So if you approach it from a place of compassion and consideration and care, just as you hopefully do with everything else in your life, then your witchcraft has such potential for positivity. So that good feeling that you have when you're engaging in your own magic, I say trust it and let goodness be your guide. Now on to my guest. Simon Coston is the director of Britain's Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, as well as the director of the Museum of British Folklore. He has been at the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic for nearly a decade, and the museum itself is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. Simon is also a world-renowned set designer who has worked with such luminaries as Alexander McQueen and Tim Walker as well as clients including Valentino, Yves Saint Laurent, Lavin, Hermes, Coach, Tiffany, and that's just the tip of the glittering iceberg. His work has also been shown in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the ICA, and many other places, and he was made an Honorary Fellow of the Arts by the University of the Arts London for his outstanding contribution to fashion and design. Simon joined me from his home in Cornwall, where he valiantly battled his spotty seaside Wi-Fi via Zoom. Simon Costin, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thank you. Great to be here. 
I'm so delighted to be speaking with you, Simon, and I'm so thrilled that the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic has reopened. Thank the gods. How is that feeling for you? Huge relief <laughs> and also quite strange because I've, ha I've had kind of a year and a half of living above the museum. And so all of a sudden it feels like you've got people in your living room. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or traipsing through the kitchen, but of course they're not. They're just guests and visitors. So um, it's, been, it's been great. Yeah. And so how have the last 14 or so months been for the museum? I know you've been entirely closed, which I imagine has been a challenge. But I also wonder if it gave you the opportunity to maybe reconfigure some exhibitions or anything like that? Yeah, well... Um, when the first lockdown happened, of course, we had no idea how long it was going to last. So there were several things that were already in, in process. Um, there was a new display case, very large display cases that were being built. So all of that kind of ground to a halt, of course, because we couldn't have anyone in the building. And then when the first lockdown finished, there was an enormous backlog with suppliers like the toughened glass for the cabinets took months to arrive instead of you know usually a couple of weeks mm. so even if we'd wanted to open we couldn't have done because the renovation work on that gallery hadn't been finished and took three times as long because of the pandemic so overall though it did give us the chance to kind of stand back and look the, well, particularly for, for me, uh, the, uh, the existing narrative that I kind of inherited when, when Graham King passed the reins to me, and it, it, it's something that I was always looking to reevaluate and um, kind of revisit and slowly pick apart to a certain extent, because I think each director who's taken over the museum has, to some extent, reinterpreted the material. And each person who comes to it breathes fresh life into the thing and that's what museums should be about they shouldn't be static and trapped in amber they should be reflecting the times and the the, the experiences of the people who come to visit so it was good from that respect absolutely let's kind of expand on that because i find that to be really really interesting the ways in which the museum has evolved over the years so can you give us first of all a little bit of a primer about the mission of the museum for those who haven't yet had the great, great luck of getting to visit. Can you tell me how you describe the museum to folks? Well, I guess the museum explores British magical practice, but we make comparisons with other systems of belief from ancient times to the present days. And we aim to represent the diversity and vigor of mag magical practice as accurately and sort of impartially as we can. And so that's the kind of the basic, that would be the mission statement, if you like, of the museum. Mm. It's unique in so much as small pockets or collections exist in other museums around the world. But this, as far as I know, is the only museum in the world that has such a large collection that is purely based on witchcraft and magical practice. So... It, it, it's very unique in that respect. Can you talk about some of the objects that people would find there and even like some of the more distinctive or unusual pieces that you're particularly proud of? 
Cecil Williamson, the founder of the museum, uh, who, who opened it originally in 1951, so this is our 70th anniversary year. Happy anniversary, Simon. That's huge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So Cecil's interests originally were very varied. I mean, his original collection was far more varied than it is at the moment. He, he, because he was quite widely traveled, it contained pieces from Africa and the Middle East and Asia, and it was, it was very diverse. And he, when he finally moved, because the mu- museum moved from several locations, Gerald Gardner continued it in the Isle of Man, but after Cecil left and took his collection with him, he went to the mainland in the UK and uh, visited several places before settling in Boscastle, where it is now. But he became, once he was here, he became very um, interested in the kind of the cunning folk and the local wise women and what, really what you call folk magic. So a large part of the collection contains objects which have been used by cunning folk for things like healing and fertility objects that were used to staunch the blood when a, an animal had become wounded. Mm. So it's very kind of very folk, folk magic based. And then when Graham took over, he took over in 1996, Graham was very um, involved with Wicca at the, uh, at the time, which of course was hugely popular and not quite in its infancy by 96, but still very much the, a, a current form of, of practice. And so he expanded the collection by contacting several of the people, prominent people within the witchcraft community, such as Janet Farah, Janet and Stuart Farah, and Patricia Crowder. Mm, legends. I know. We have quite a lot of material from Gerald Gardner and particularly Alexander's. I can tell you what a few of my favourites are. Yes. There is a, a strapped skull, which is basically uh, a human skull. It, it lacks the lower jaw, so it's the upper part of the skull. And it's sitting on an iron pentagon, and then it has two iron straps that run across to keep the head in place, but also to retain the spirit of that individual. Depends which sort of where you're coming from in terms of your belief systems, whether or not that's a good thing or not. Sure. The way in which it, the, it was used by the coming, she was from North Bovey in Devon. And she used to have this as almost like her um, means of contacting the spirit world. And people would come to her with a problem or a question, and she would write this down and place it underneath the skull and ask them to come back a few days later. And she would kind of commune with this spirit force within the skull and discuss the discuss the issue and then give the answer when the client came back. So these wow. pieces are very still very much fizzing, I think is one word for it. We are very respectful to all of the objects within the museum, but this piece in particular is often something that people have a very strong reaction to. Usually, nine times out of ten, it's a positive one. They feel that the, the spirit within the skull is in a happy place. So unlike some of the other things, we do have a large amount of uh, poppets that have been used for cursing, as mm. well as healing. But the, the cursing poppets tend to be the things that people have very strong reactions to, ranging from headaches and nausea to jewellery breakings. Very strange um, people's necklaces kind of just snap huh. and fall off. It's very odd. 
I hadn't heard of it until Graham told me. And then in my tenure here, I've been here for eight years, three people have reported their jewellery breaking, always in front of the same cabinet of puppets. Oh, my goodness. So, Simon, I have to ask, and I'm sure people ask you this a lot, but being around objects that have, we'll call it, negative energy around them, how does that affect you? I mean, you literally live above this museum, as you said. Yeah. What What is that like? And, and are you doing things to, I don't know, protect yourself, cleanse yourself from some of those more malefic energies? Yeah, well, I think back in the day when I started on this path, I think one of the touchstone books was Dion Fortune's Psychic Self-Defense. Mm. And um, it's often something I refer to. And I think once you kind of have a, a sort of armor that you've developed over the years, and also I think it's the way in which you approach these objects, you have to kind of develop a rapport. I know it sounds very strange, maybe. Not at all, not at all. To be talking about objects in this way, but these aren't ordinary objects. So I think it's partly developing a rapport and trust they know what you're about and you know you acknowledge what they're about and there's a sort of air of mutual respect because several people have come to us asking if if we would like them to cleanse the object of negative you know run amok with burning sage (laughs) i'm always like well thank you very much but the, the thing that makes these things important and have presence is the very thing that you want to take away so we've always politely turned down those offers of cleansing the collection. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Are there certain objects that maybe people have offered you to be in the collection that have felt too, I don't know, too dark? Not really. We've, we've had several things sent to us unsolicited, which is always slightly unnerving when something just turns <laughs> up in the post. Just a just a a box of teeth on your doorstep. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's head. No, <laughs> oh, no. it's usually usually a kind of uh, figurine or what have we had? We had a little wooden idol that was sent to us. We couldn't quite decipher where which culture it was from. We think it was Polynesian, but we could be wrong. But then it would come with this letter saying. Um, my grandmother this was in my grandmother's house and it found its way to me and i've been having nightmares and so it's often people project onto objects which we once they've been welcomed into the bosom of the the museum (laughs) they tend to sit quite happily in amongst everything there's nothing i can think of that graham or cecil ever turned away because it was too dark Mm-hmm. too boring yeah <laughs> we get tons of sort of here's my plastic witch that i had as a kitty would you like it for your museum no thank you sure. but thank you for the offer mm-hmm. but generally speaking there no we, we we haven't and also we're all very well versed in how to handle and communicate with these things so so it's not as if you know we don't know how to approach them Sure, sure. I know that there are many, many people, especially practicing witches now, who are trying to drum up positive PR for witchcraft and 
frankly, I, I'm sometimes one of them where I try to say, no, 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 no. I'm not going around cursing people. I'm not hexing people. You know, like that's not <laughs> yeah. part of my practice. Most of us are really nice and benevolent. <laughs> and yet you're out in these streets, Simon, with like skulls and leather straps and poppets, right? So I'm wondering how you reconcile this is a terrible pun, but like the branding of the witch, it seems like you're happy to lean into the shadow as much as the light. I wouldn't be doing my job if I was to start censoring the collection. It's not my place to start saying that historic objects which were used for cursing should no longer be shown because it puts contemporary witchcraft in a bad light. Mm -hmm. If people aren't intelligent enough to decipher that these things are one facet of a whole spectrum of practices, then there's not much I can do. But I'm certainly not about to start censoring the collection for the sensitivities of a few people who may not be able to decipher that that one cabinet in the museum out of something like 40 cabinets is representing something dark. Witchcraft has always consisted of shades of grey from black to white. So where do you draw the line? One thing that somebody may find upsetting, another won't. So I, um, my aim is really to, to explore and to contribute to that dialogue. And I'm not about to start censoring things because they lean towards the dark. There's a lot here that leans towards the light. So I think we strive for balance. Absolutely. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I am so excited to tell you about Maud's Paper Wing Gallery. Maud's Paper Wing Gallery is a queer, woman-owned witch shop and LGBTQIA plus gift store located in Pittsburgh. The witches at Maud's Paper Wing Gallery are passionate about personal growth and healing past traumas, and they have collected a vast assortment of tools and resources to support your spiritual and emotional journey. Join their virtual community by stopping into their weekly movie nights or their bi-monthly book club on Zoom. For a virtual tour of their shop and to meet the witches, you can join them on Facebook Live every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And of course, you can also visit the Mods Paperwing Gallery online store to browse a variety of crystals, candles, books, zines, I love a zine, stickers, and fun gifts that range from spooky to rainbow and covered in glitter. For more information or to check out their online store, head over to www.modspaperwinggallery.com. And Maud is spelled like Harold and Maud, M-A-U-D-E-S, paperwinggallery.com. And use code WITCHWAVE for 13% off your first order. That's modspaperwinggallery.com. Code WITCHWAVE gets you 13% off your first order. Get something good. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances, but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. 
I am so grateful for my therapist. And even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp an online counseling service which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do, or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which, let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days. I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. Now, a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, plus they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, which wave listeners, that's you, get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to BetterHelp dot com slash which wave that's better h e l p dot com slash which wave i believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy i certainly have myself and i'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so so please pop over to betterhelp.com slash which wave and find a great counselor to talk to BetterHelp is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Simon Costin. So Simon, I have to ask, was becoming the director of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic like a lifelong goal or is this complete happenstance? How did this happen to you? Wow. Um, <laughs> once upon a time, my mother, when I told her, actually, I was, Graham had offered the museum to me, was so unsurprised. She was sort of like, oh, well, that was inevitable. <laughs> and I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, as a child, you're always reading, you know, your reading matter was always of, uh, you did Tolkien or all the classic fantasy novels. And I think... As a child, I'd long acknowledged that there was other ways of looking at the world and interpreting the world and living in the world. And magical practice came so naturally that it did have a kind of inevitability about it. But my initial involvement with the museum came about through catastrophe, really. It It was, I can't drive. And I'd always wanted to visit the museum, but where it is is very remote. Mm. We're perched here on the edge of uh, the north the north side of Cornwall. And I'd always meant to go. I'd always meant to go. And then I came in one evening and turned the news on in 2004. And there was this report of this horrendous flash flood because the museum's in a valley. And the 
defences, the, the flood defences at the top of the valley had, had broken because of the downpour of rain. Oh, my goodness. And the entire area was flooded and the museum was gutted. I think the level is about six feet, seven feet of water flooded the ground floor of the museum. Oh. But luckily, um, Graham King, the, the previous director, was a coast guard. So he was able to keep an eye. He knew what he could see what was happening when the river breached its banks. Because it happened over, you know, it didn't just happen immediately. It happened over an hour or more. So along with the staff at the museum, they were able to get 90% of the ground floor material all upstairs. Uh, we lost very, very little, actually, in, in actual fact. But my, I was sat there glued to the television thinking, oh, man, it's probably all gone. You know, looking at the, the, the devastation on the news and the news reports, it looked horrendous, and it, and it was. But thankfully, the, the collection was mostly intact. And I kept ringing and ringing, and of course, all the power lines were down, so I couldn't get through. And eventually, Graham, weeks later, picked the phone up and said, OK, you keep leaving messages. <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> and I explained, I said, listen, you don't know me from Adam, but I've, I've always wanted to visit a museum. Is there anything I can do to help? I don't know what, you know. He said, well, if you know anyone with display cases, we've, they've all been smashed to smithereens. So, And it just so happened that a friend of a friend was decommissioning old mahogany display cases from the Geology Museum ah. in London. So I acted as a kind of go-between between Graham, the museum, and myself, and and negotiated everything and got more the cases they needed. And, and that kind of began a friendship with Graham and I and a, a sort of a long drawn out engagement period with the collection itself. But that's how I came to be involved. And I think Graham was always, he could reconcile my day job, which is uh, as a set designer, with an interest in the occult. So I started getting a <laughs> phone calls from sort of friends like Janet Farrah, for instance, saying, Simon Graham called me the other week, just, I think he was just sounding you out. Or, and, I, and Graham, I think, was just putting out feelers to ensure that the, the person he was considering to pass things over to did actually have a genuine interest in the subject rather than just some passing fancy. And I took over in 2013. Incredible. I actually want to talk a little bit about your what you call your day job as a set designer. You're being very humble. I mean, your career in set design is working with amazing fashion houses and brands like Alexander McQueen and Lanvin and Tiffany and some of the most amazing, personally heroic photographers like Tim Walker, who I, I worship. So I'm struck by the fact that there's quite a lot of magic and sort of the casting of glamour spells, if you will, and such in that world. So I, I do see some similarity there, but does it feel like kind of an expression of your magical practice or magical identity when you're working at your day job as well? It's hard to say. I guess the sensibility that I bring, hopefully bring to the work is magical in intent, but I wouldn't say there were direct crossovers because they're so wildly different. But in sensibility, I'd say that there was certainly, I, I, I'm always drawn to the more, like Tim Walker, for instance, does the most incredibly magical sets. And uh. We create environments for mermaids to swim in or 
Humpty Dumpty to be reinvented or, you know, it's all sorts of things we, we put together. So they're very Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass worlds that get created with Tim. And to a certain extent, the designers I've been lucky enough to work with also share that kind of otherworldly take on things. So I, I don't tend to get to work with people who are minimal. <laughs> who, are, who are boring. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Slightly more maximal in, in that sense. So I suppose it is a crossover, but yeah, it's more to do with sensibility than actual practice. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to confess, Simon, that I became familiar with you through your current role as the director of this museum. I didn't even realize your history with McQueen until I was watching the McQueen documentary that came out a couple years ago. And I was like, that's that's Simon. What the fuck? Like my (laughs) mind was blown. And so if, if it's not too gauche of a question, I'd love to hear how you started working together. I mean, my goodness, two geniuses. Oh, bless you. Well, I, it, well, oh, right. Okay, it's a long story. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> when I was at art school, one of my part-time tutors was um, a film director, queer activist, Derek Jarman. And um, uh, are you Derek, kidding me? Wait a second. Can we just pause on that? Yeah. That's <laughs> unbelievable, Derek Jarman. <laughs> yeah, he 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 was our our tutor uh. at Wimbledon School of Art. So, and he was incredibly influential on on my work. He was the first person that really sort of drew the veil across, if you like, to show me that uh, so many of the interests I'd had as a child that were unformed or interest in the occult or magical practice had this incredible history. And so he, he took me to the British Museum and showed me John Dee's black scrying mirror. And oh, yes, the showstone. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was, he was pivotal, I think, in the way that I started to interpret the world. And one of the projects that he set us was a mask-making thing and we we talked about disguise and rituals and Mm. and as a child I had learned the techniques of taxidermy at the Natural History Museum. Of course you did Simon. Of course course you did. I I had to find something to fill the time. So yeah I learned taxidermy from the age of 11 to 16. (laughs) Anyway it's very it's very trendy now. Oh, I know. I just have to interject and say, I feel like if if you and I had been the same age, we would have either been like the best of friends or just arch nemeses because we were too alike. Like, <laughs> oh, the best of friends. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Let's assume. Absolutely. So you're doing taxidermy as a child, oh, yes, yes so, so, as one does. That's it. And then when I left college, I was making kind of, well, I didn't really see it as jewellery, really, but I suppose it wasn't called it jewellery. It was things that you could wear, but told stories of all the, I was very much influenced by the sort of decadent writers at the turn of the century, and also contemporary writers like Angela Carter and people like that. So the the jewellery was very story-driven. You know, it got quite a lot of press, and the Victorian Albert Museum bought a piece, and things like that. And there was a young 
student who was doing finishing his degree show off, who saw some of my work in, I think it was the Face magazine, which used to be published back then. And he just uh, wrote to me via the magazine, because of course you didn't have email then. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, would you, would you make some jewellery for my degree show? And I said, well, I'm not really doing that anymore. I, um, it was only a four or five year phase. But you can loan. I've got quite a few pieces left. So he, he loaned these pieces for his degree show. And that was Alexander McQueen. Ah. So that's how we became really good mates. And I kept saying, look, I trained as a theatre designer. You know, I could design the sets for your shows. Come on. And, of course, he was just starting out. This was really, really early days. So sure. the first shows we did, he didn't have any budget at all. And slowly, bit by bit, of course, he, he became so incredibly well-known because he was so incredibly talented mm. that we all of a sudden started getting people like American Express as sponsors. And that allowed me to really take the ideas I had for set design to another level because all of a sudden having that kind of budget you could really experiment and and push ideas forward in a way that you couldn't before and i i didn't really have any formal training in fashion so uh, i was intrigued by the world of fashion but what i'd wanted to do was be a production designer on films Mm. but i can't get up in the morning (laughs) same simon same just a night owl and i did for years did pop videos, pop promos with with a young director who's fantastic, director called Lindy Heyman. And we worked with all the indie bands like Pulp and Blur and Suede and all those people back then. Amazing. But it was torture for me having to be on set by 6am in the morning. And I rapidly realised that fashion, where they don't usually rock in until 10, (laughs) was much more suited to my sensibility, my, my... you know, my body clock. Your circadian rhythms. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Quite happily worked till two in the morning, but not not, not in the morning, morning now. Oh I my wish goodness. I could. I really wish I could. I think it's a t- people who say you can change that are liars. It's not true. I, I Thank really you, Simon. Thank you. I have just entered my uh fourth decade well I guess technically I just turned 40 so I guess I entered my fifth decade it's too early for me to do math right now but anyhow um (laughs) and and I'm like you know this is just how I am I am just a night owl it's just not gonna change it's not gonna change and I don't need it to change and I know the sunrise is beautiful and I will see it maybe four times in my life and that's enough (laughs) (laughs) sunset just as just as sexy Agree. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, you can't beat Twilight, my friend. <laughs> okay, on that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. 2,000 years ago, in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras Candles, my favorite. Handmade from the purest East Coast golden cappings beeswax with that natural, subtle, honey and floral scent, Mithras Candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries 
of your life. Mithras candles come in natural gold and rich black varieties. You can also get them in their signature, stunning, hand-dripped style, or you can choose their smooth and rustic version. They also have wide pillars for sale if you're feeling extra expansive with your magic. And very exciting, they now have new long sleeve black t-shirts for sale and I am so excited to get mine because I love a long sleeve shirt and this one is gorgeous. So go on ahead to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. That's MithrasCandle.com, and offer code WITCH gets you 13% off your first order. Thank you, Mithras. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Simon Costin. So Simon, I could talk to you about all of the amazing fashion and, you know, all of your day job magic (laughs) for probably 10 more hours. But I do want to pivot us back to talking about the museum. You know, I am so frustrated because I was in Cornwall when I was still a student at college. I was studying art history. Oh, really? Just just briefly, I was studying abroad for my last semester of college, and I had this art history course that took us to Cornwall. And, you know, we went to the Barbara Hepworth Museum and Tate St. Ives, and we had the most, like, devilish clotted cream high tea I've ever had in my life. It was amazing. But I'm so upset that I didn't even know the museum existed. And frankly, as a student, I probably couldn't have gotten there anyhow. But I was so enchanted by the landscape of Cornwall. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about how your experience moving there has been for you and, and just kind of the specific magical energy that exists in that landscape. Mm. It Cornwall is a very enchanted corner of the UK, really. It's um, steeped in so many things. You've, you've got Tintagel very close, where the ruins of um, King Arthur's castle are. And there's a lot of Neolithic sites and stone circles nearby. It, it's very much steeped in that. Mind you saying that, there isn't many corners of the UK that, aren't, that don't have something exactly. like that going on. But to be honest, Cornwall has kind of retained their independence too from England for quite a while. And they very much see themselves as Cornish. They're, you know, they're not part of the rest of England in the way that other parts are. 
So, yeah, we, we, we've put together this um, exhibition that's running. We have a temporary exhibition space at the museum, and it's looking at um, Cornish folklore and myths and legends, not just uh, magical practice, but the whole spectrum. And there's so many things. I mean, it was very hard to know where to draw the line because you could fill the whole museum with stories about Cornish folklore. But there's things like um, the knockers. The, now, the knockers are little people who in tin mines can be heard knocking and they're, they're a kind of pisky, I guess, or pixie, a little, one of the little people. And depending on who you, who you read, they were either seen as forewarning a collapse in a tin mine. So the miners thought favorably of them and used to leave out a portion of their Cornish pasty for the knockers, Mm -hmm. or they were seen as malevolent and actually their knocking was the cause of a collapse. So there's these, these sort of ambiguous characters that are woven through Cornish folklore. Um, there's a long history of changelings in Cornwall, where a child would be abducted by the fairy folk, and this kind of gnarly, ugly-looking baby left in its place. <laughs> I know, it's hysterical. But if you look at those reports historically, they're actually quite sad. They were often used for... A woman who gave birth to a child who could have had a, some kind of physical defect or and they were thought to be a changeling child. And often they would just literally be left by a crossroads in the hope that the fairies would take them back. Mm. So there's underlying a lot of these stories. There's, very, there's often quite a sad narrative running through them. So I'm wondering for you, I guess we haven't really delved too much into your own magical practice. You alluded to it from when you were a child, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming that is still part of your life. And if it is, I'm wondering if Cornish magic or Cornish energy has affected you kind of on a personally magical level too. Oh, very much so, I think. I you know, Before now, I was living in London, so I was living in a city, but I also had a place where I went to practice, which was a fo- part of a forest in Sussex. And it was a beautiful old piece of woodland. And working outdoors with the energies of wherever you find yourself to be has always been very, very important. Coming down to Cornwall, it's very distinctive. It's very hard to <laughs> to pinpoint because it's very soft. It, I don't know how to describe it. It's softer than the further east you go in the UK. It gets a lot sort of more harder and aggressive somehow the, the energies there I've always whereas Cornwall is very gentle and but no less powerful for that which is surprising because it's surrounded by cliffs and sea and it gets battered by the wind and it's very rugged but the, I find the energies here very very soft to work with and very very gentle and embracing and protective ah you talking about soft energy and soft magic makes me think of that notion of thin places, the, this idea mm. that, you know, there are some places on Earth that are more porous or more liminal. I mean, perhaps this is why a lot of the King Arthur and Avalon myths, you know, are from the region, because it feels like maybe there's a, a thinner veil that Cornwall is beneath or part of somehow. Does it feel like that to you? Yes, very much so. Very much so. I think it's far easier, or I've found it far easier, to get in touch with those sort of 
what you like to call them, people call them nature spirits from nature or elementals or just that spirit of place. I've found it far easier to tap into here than I have anywhere else. Yeah, it's it's become part of my working sort of magical practice, which is like anyone's evolves and changes over the years. Back in the 80s, I was initiated into Alexandrian Wicker. So that was my my beginning. Yes. Path. Of course, I've gone wildly far from that through Janet Farrah, one of Janet Farrah's high priestesses. But that was, we're talking back in the 80s, so some time ago. <laughs> yes, how magnificent. Has every director of the museum also been a practitioner of magic? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I'm, I can't imagine Graham would have, or Cecil would have handed over the museum to somebody who wasn't, because I think most museums that have objects that sit statically within a cabinet aren't resonating in the way that a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the objects here are. Mm. Because if you if you think that a lot of these things have been used in ritual practice for many, many, many years by practitioners, so they're still very much charged. And I think you need to know how to handle those things and how to approach them to establish a dialogue with them. So, yeah, I think it's very important. And whoever I end up passing the reins to will also... I, I know I'll make very much sure that they are, they have some practice themselves. That's awesome. I'm wondering, too, in terms of your identity, I don't know if you are comfortable with the word witch to describe yourself or if there's another word you prefer, but is that a part of yourself that you're pretty public about, like in your day job life as well? Or do you feel like you have sort of a shape-shifting aspect to your identity or your multivalent identities? Um, I think what I was very much taught from the school of the the more you know, the less you talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I tend not to really mention it within work practice, but because it never comes up in conversation. You know, they all, everyone knows that I'm the director of the museum and, and occasionally I'll get asked questions. But also I've noticed in the past 10 to 15 years, this enormous resurgence of interest in the occult and witchcraft and the amount of people calling themselves a witch now is you know it's um ridiculous it's kind of there can't be that many witches <laughs> it's become a kind of mantra a sort of battle cry in a way because we obviously we get a lot of people here but quite often the louder they shout the less knowledge they actually seem to have when you actually try to discuss magical practice mm. it tends to be a lot of bluster and usually attention seeking which i run away from sure <laughs> sure I hate to say it. i'm not dissing which but you know what i mean there's a lot of people who seem to they're just doing it to piss off their parents or <laughs> or their or their school or something it's, and and i've seen people who are rabidly espousing witchcraft practice Say, say 10 years ago, and now, you know, they're a chartered accountant. <laughs> At the museum here, you, we get a lot of people claiming to be this, that, and the other, but you can see it's wafer thin, their interest, actually. They haven't done the work, is, is, what, is what it boils down to quite often. Mm, mm. You know, it's interesting because I think when I talk about the popularity of witchcraft right now, I think in my limited experience, folks that come from Britain tend to have a different point of view on it than folks from here in America. 
And I don't know that there's a a better or worse way of looking at it. I think all perspectives probably have some truth to them. But I think here in the States, because witchcraft has also become very much linked to like feminist identity and intersectional identity and, you know, justice and social justice that I think let a little less concern about like who's a real witch and who isn't. We don't have the lineage that you guys have, you know, because of course a lot of the witchcraft practice that stemmed from Gardner and was brought here by, you know, Raymond Buckland and folks like that. But yeah, Yeah. I I do find when I speak to my British friends, there's a little bit more of a protective attitude about the identity as a witch. And and I understand it too, because it's a big part of your national identity to some degree. Yes, it is. It is, certainly. I think, I mean, what I found interesting is I, I went, when I was in New York a year or two ago, I gave a talk to the Satanic Temple chapter there. And I found it so inspiring, a lot of what they're doing, which is political for the most part. It's, it's you know, they're the first to acknowledge that they don't believe in a deity in that way that they're taking on the sort of the mantle of Satan as this fallen hero and using that usually to wind up far-right evangelical groups or whatever they're doing. But I, I find that really inspiring what they, what they do because it doesn't really exist like that here particularly because it hasn't had to, but it has had to in America. And I think speaking to them all, it was, um, it was very inspiring, very um, uplifting. I kind of wanted to start my own chapter in the UK for a while. Do it, Simon. Although I've got fun. <laughs> I know. You, you have too many projects already. <laughs> exactly. But just that notion of, yeah, of taking that heroic figure and then completely recontextualizing it really and using it for, well, what I see to be quite positive ends. Yeah. And, and for me, I think that's what's happening with the archetype of the witch, this maligned force of feminine energy who Mm. has this history of persecution and that many people who are, you know, on the feminine end of the spectrum or they're non-binary are reclaiming this archetype for themselves in ways that are really healing and empowering. It is similar and related to the practice of witchcraft but it's not exactly the same thing. And honestly, this is something I grapple with. And that's why I wrote a whole dang book about it, because I am someone who is both a literal practitioner of witchcraft, but also someone who embodies the archetype of the witch for a lot of these feminist reclamation and reasons of politics and reasons of having agency and so on. I know it's a very nuanced, complicated conversation, but I really value your perspective on it, too, as someone who's like, well, I I come from Britain, and so (laughs) we have an actual, like, history of this. But no, I think it's incredibly refreshing and positive to see how it's being taken up by younger people, and not in the way that it was when I was younger, but in, as you say, for all the reasons you just mentioned, for empowerment and uh, as a positive role model to identify with. Yeah, all those are incredibly positive, strong things that should be embraced and cherished. 
So Simon, it's so wonderful that the museum is very much a destination, but I know that it's important to you to keep it connected to other parts of the country and the world. I'm thinking of the exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum, the Spellbound exhibition that you had the museum loan quite a number of objects for. And I was actually at an event in London that you did, I believe it was for either Sotheby's or Christie's. Oh, Christie's, yeah. Yes, yes. Celebrating a lot of British folklore. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your outreach to other parts of the country and parts of the world? Well, in terms of the folklore um, museum, this is a kind of sister project. The Museum of British Folklore is, um, we don't have a, a physical venue for it yet. We've existed for the past 10 years by doing exhibitions in other um, locations, like other museums or other art galleries or things like that. But it's always bothered me that the UK, which is so rich in folklore and seasonal customs and events, doesn't actually have anywhere that celebrates and nurtures that vernacular culture. There's nothing in the UK that um, there's no kind of museum of British folklore at all. I mean, my passion for folklore started, I think, when as a very young child, I, we were always taken on holiday in Cornwall. And I was in a village called Padstow on May morning. And the Padstow townspeople have this extraordinary celebration for the coming of summer in, in, in every May Day, where these two strange, it's so hard to even describe what they look like. They're like mm. a huge black disc with a curtain around it, and then this conical mask that's worn on the top. And it's, it's meant to represent a kind of horse, and it's called an os. O double S, and there are two Ossies. And I remember just walking around a, a, row, a street and seeing this incredible procession with these cantering, black, almost demonic figures, just scaring people and running into people. And, and the idea is that if, if a woman is, is caught beneath the skirt, she'd be pregnant within six months, sorry, nine months. <laughs> wow. So um, it, it's the kind of raucous fertility festival and I can remember as a child just being absolutely mesmerized and terrified on equal level and it started off this interest in these strange sometimes ancient sometimes not ancient at all festivals that we have in the UK so as I grew older my frustration with not having anywhere I thought right I need to kind of try and address this and I set off around the country in a little painted caravan to establish whether I was insane or whether other people actually would have an interest in the Museum of Folklore. So it's a moment that gives people the opportunity to step out of their everyday lives and become something other, become something very much between the worlds. I mean, the characters in Padstow's May Day or the Abbot's Bromley Horn Dance or barrel burning in otterism, all these different things are where people celebrate identity, community, and just their sense of being human and how that's expressed in all these different unique ways is so important for me. But currently there's nothing that exists. So I'm on a mission, Pam, I'm on a mission. Yes. To um, establish a museum folklore in the UK. 
How wonderful. Oh, oh, I was just asking sort of about <laughs> if outreach to other regions beyond Cornwall is going to be a continued part of the museum's missions. Yeah, no, I think we've since I've been here, I I I made a point of going to see I went to the British Library, for instance, and told them about the collection. Of course, they'd never heard of us. And the Ashmolean was a, came partly because we loaned all these things to a huge exhibition called The History of Magic at the British Library. And the people from the Ashmolean had seen that, and then they approached us. And we're always loaning things out. And I'm, I'm very, very keen for the collection other than the particularly fragile objects, but for the more stable, robust things to be seen by other people in other parts of the country, because it is quite remote and it is quite hard to get to here. So I'm I'm very keen to do that. We're actually working in collaborating with, um, I'm not going to jinx it because it hasn't (laughs) been confirmed, but um, it's a, a potential exhibition for 2022, looking at witchcraft and suburbia, the kind of, the way in which all those fabulous early pictures from the 50s, 60s, where people have just literally in their, their suburban homes have rolled the carpet back and they're performing their rites and dancing naked. And that fabulous clash of the magical and the suburban, I find wildly interesting. Oh, hell yes. And I have to say that as <laughs> the teen witch inside me that grew up in suburban New Jersey is glowing yeah. at the prospect of you doing an exhibition <laughs> around that. That's fabulous. Because it's also a level of subversion and anti-authoritarianism that runs through magical practice in the UK. Because bear in mind that it was illegal until 1951 in this country. So it, it it existed in very much in the shadows and not like it does now. And this this exhibition will look at the sort of the origins of that. Oh, how wonderful. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. And to your point, I think that a lot of the practitioners of witchcraft in the 50s and 60s and earlier, you know, we don't tend to think of them as being really radical and bohemian, but that's what they were. I mean, these people are such heroes. And and of course, if we're talking about early practitioners of Wicca, let's say, I know Wicca is a complicated and storied practice, and we don't have time to unpack that here. But for somebody in suburbia to be sky clad and, you know, doing all kinds of rituals about liberation and, you know, things that were sexually open and incredibly artful. I mean, these are really open-minded folks. So I really would love to see them contextualized as such more. And it sounds like that's what this exhibition will do. Yeah, absolutely. No, well, I look forward to welcoming you to that. And if if you find yourself in London in June, we we have a, a museum of British folklore exhibition running for the month of June at uh, the Crypt Gallery in uh, Euston. So should any of your listeners be in London during June, do do um, have a look at the Museum of British Folklore's Instagram or Facebook. It's all on there. How fabulous. Well, listen, Simon, 
I am determined to come visit you at the museum in Cornwall as soon as humanly possible. I'm so happy that you are open again. And I am just so grateful to you for the magic that you weave and the artful enchantment that you live. I mean, you just every aspect of your life I am bewitched by. So thank you for just being yourself <laughs> and for making the world truly more magical and more beautiful, Simon. Oh, well, thank you very much, Pam. That's a lovely, lovely description. And thank you very much for having me on the show. I, I can't wait to see you again. I mean, that time we met in New York seems like centuries ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's to our reuniting soon. And until then, Simon, be well. And thank you so much for being on The Witch Wave. Thank you very much, Pam. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Simon Coston for sharing both his light and dark arts with me and everything in between. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Josh Wilcox, thank you Josh, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witch Wave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all the other places and give us lots and lots and lots of sparkly stars if you please. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at witchwavepod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you would like more witch wave in your life, or you would just like to support the show, please do join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.